chapter 15, uh, we will be dealing with the issue and the question of the resurrection, the resurrection of the saints on the basis of the resurrection of our risen Lord. Turning there today, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. You can find that on page 961 of our cart Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, looking today at verses 1 through 11. Before we go to God's Word, let us go to Him again in prayer and ask His blessing on the reading of it. Let's pray. O God of glory and grace, God of wisdom and might and Holy Spirit power, we pray that You would help us as we read Your Word. Thank You for giving us this, Your revelation to show us the truth of Jesus Christ. Help us by your Spirit to know and to believe these things as they have been passed on and delivered to us. Help us to rejoice in the truth of the Gospel. Help us to hold fast to Jesus, our Savior. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hear now God's Word as we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the Gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. I'll send the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. I'd like to ask you for a moment to imagine that you are a marriage counselor. Every day, week after week, couples come into your office with their problems, and their issues, and it is your job, so far as you are able, to help these couples, these husbands and wives, to get through these issues with their love and their marriages intact. Some of the couples who come to you just need a basic tune-up. Others are tiptoeing on the brink of the abyss, but they all come to you, dealing with the normal stresses of everyday life and work and family, and children, and in-laws. They come to you not really knowing how to deal with finances together, not knowing how to communicate sometimes. They come to you dealing with issues of intimacy, or maybe even infidelity. They come to you, like everyone else you know, dealing with things that are unforeseen circumstances the Lord has brought into their path, and wondering what God could possibly be doing as they wait through disappointments. And they come to you with these problems. And how do you help? What can you do? 
But one approach is to focus on all of these separate little issues. Take them one by one and drag them out into the light, and you can model for the couple how to communicate or teach them how to create a budget and stick to it together. You can show them how to deal with conflict and how to work through all the fears and all the accusations and all the mistrust and all the sin and the failure to love. But at a certain point, you've got to take a step back. Remember why they are married in the first place. What is the covenant? What are the promises that they made before God and man that ought to be resonating in their daily lives? You see, without that foundation, foundation, everything else is secondary. A mere list of, of self-help tips on how to get along. Without the covenant and the vows and the promises, it's all just techniques. We've seen as we've gone through our studies in 1 Corinthians that the Apostle Paul is dealing with an awful lot of issues in the Corinthian church. This is his problem letter to a problem church, and Paul has, in a sense, counseled them through at least eight separate different problems by the time we get to chapter 15. Everything from divisions over who their favorite preacher was uh, to dealing with sexual immorality in their midst to taking advantage of the poor when they come together at the Lord's table. And what we've seen, if you've been paying attention for the last year and a half, is that Paul consistently returns to the foundation of the gospel, the covenant and the promises and the truth of Jesus Christ to help them to work through all of the different problems that they're going through. This church ought not to be divided because Christ, their sacrifice, is not divided. He is one. They ought to flee sexual immorality because by the blood of Christ they have been washed from former impurities. They have been called to holiness and life in Him. They ought to come together at the table in a, a kind of unity that shows forth the one sacrifice of Christ given for all of His elect whom He is gathering to Himself from all the nations. This book is full of the gospel. Everywhere we turn, we cannot get away from it. Paul returns again and again to this foundation to deal with the problems in the church. But what if the problem in the church is the gospel itself? This is really the problem that we turn to in chapter 15. It is this question of the gospel claims that because Jesus Christ was physically and bodily raised on the third day after his crucifixion, that so too believers in Christ will be physically and bodily raised to partake of that resurrection with Him. We haven't read it yet, but we find that uh, the reason for this whole chapter comes in verse 12, that there are some among the Corinthian church who do not believe in the resurrection. Verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That's the issue at hand. And Paul says this is not a side issue. This is not a side quest that we're going on. This is the very core of the gospel itself. That's what he says in verse 1. I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. Let's get this straight before we ever get started. Before we can talk about the resurrection of believers together with Christ, we've got to know what the gospel claims about the resurrection of Jesus. This is the issue at stake in 1 Corinthians 15. There are some things we've got to get straight about the gospel. With the Lord's help, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to get a few things straight about the gospel. 
a few things that Paul would have us to know, that the Holy Spirit, by his inspired word, would have us to know about this gospel that we hold dear to. The first thing we need to get straight about the gospel is just what we're supposed to do with it. What are we supposed to do with the gospel? In these first two verses of chapter 15, Paul makes several important claims about what the gospel was doing and what they had done already with the gospel between Paul and the Corinthians. He begins by sharing their history together in the gospel. He says, I came and proclaimed it to you, and when I did that, you received it. I proclaimed and you received. Actually, the word for proclaimed is more like evangelized. The gospel is the evangel, the good news. And Paul came evangelizing this evangel. And when he did it, their hearts were open in faith to receive Jesus Christ as their own. And they've got this shared history together. This is what we did with the gospel, Paul says. I proclaimed it, you received it. But let's think also, he says, about what the gospel is doing now. Not just what we have done in the past, but what is the gospel doing now? Well, if you've received this gospel in faith, then you are standing in this gospel. This is your foundation, and you are being saved by this gospel. The gospel is not the kind of thing that makes you happy for a moment until you forget it. The gospel is powerful. It is life-changing. It is identity-changing. It gives you new status with the Lord, and the guilt of your sin is forgiven, and the curse of iniquity is erased. That's God's gift to those who have received the gospel. New standing and status and salvation. And Paul says quite a few important things about the gospel in these verses. But perhaps the two most important words are the ones we're tempted to overlook in verse 2. Those little words, if and unless. That's what makes all the difference. All of this is true of the gospel unless you have believed something in vain. All of this is promised to you if you hold fast to the gospel. And that, by the way, is what we're supposed to do with the gospel. We are to hold fast to it. We cannot make the gospel something that we take up for a little while and then we trade off if we can find a better deal. The gospel is the sum of all of our hopes in Christ. It is the only claim that we have on the inheritance that the Lord has promised to those who love Him. And so if we think that we can begin with the gospel and then leave it behind when we reach some better stage in our Christian development, we have not heard the message of the gospel at all. We must hold fast to the gospel and not let it slip from our grasp or our memory or our love or our faith. Unfortunately, that's the kind of thing that can happen. There are churches where this happens, There are churches where the gospel itself is proclaimed, and yet you realize when you begin to look at these churches that that it really is pushed to the background. It serves as the setting, the, the stage on which the play is portrayed, but it doesn't really have anything to do with the action that's happening. I think I shared with you several years ago, I had the chance to meet with a pastor at just such a church here in Concord. It was a church that claims to be Christian and, and names the name of Christ. And I met with this pastor, and she was very happy to tell me that her church is a non-creedal church. That is, that there is nothing that you need to believe to be a part or a member of their church. There's no particular faith creed that you need to name. 
Instead, the point of their congregation was to encourage one another to, quote, live the gospel. And she used that word, gospel, as though it meant something. But the more we talked, it was very clear that it didn't mean much at all. It certainly did not mean the message that Paul is proclaiming here, this propositional truth that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised again on the third day. It certainly did not mean that. To live the gospel for her meant something like being a good person. It meant kindness to your neighbor and, and giving to charity and protecting the environment and all good things, yes, but none of them is the gospel. None of them has the power to save. You see, there is a drastic difference between giving lip service to the gospel and holding fast to the gospel. There is also a drastic difference between holding fast to the gospel and merely assuming the gospel. That's the danger that lies closer to our hearts, I bet. It's this idea that perhaps the gospel can be picked up by osmosis. That by mere exposure to the truth, we become saved or spiritual people or, or whatever we like to claim or think. This is the sort of thing that happens sometimes in churches where someone walks down an aisle and says a prayer and they put a decision card in their wallet and they walk away thinking that one mere outward experience or transaction with the Lord is all that it takes. But then they walk away with no real sense of their own sin, no real joy and salvation, no commitment to Christ, no faith that shows up in daily living and perseverance and sanctification. The gospel is merely assumed and it's, it's back there somewhere. But they are not holding fast to it. It's also the kind of thing that happens, this assuming or presuming the gospel. It's the kind of thing that happens when we look arrogantly at all those other so-called Christians. We pray a prayer like the Pharisees. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men, for I can recite the doctrine of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and I was baptized in a confessional conservative Presbyterian church as an infant. And it happens when we put more faith in our understanding of the gospel than we do in the Jesus that this gospel proclaims. Holding fast to the gospel is not about presumption. It's not about lip service. It's about perseverance. Holding fast to the gospel is the living and active faith that the Holy Spirit works into all of His children. It is the hope which looks more and more to Jesus and less and less to ourselves. It is the grace, the gift given to Christ's people that day after day, so long as we should live, we can continue to look to Him and say, nothing in my hands do I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. That's what we need to do with the gospel. We need to hold fast to the gospel. Secondly, Paul wants to tell us what this gospel is all about. Maybe that seems out of order for you. Shouldn't Paul tell us what the gospel is all about first and then call us to hold fast to it? You see, the Corinthians already knew the gospel, didn't they? That's just the point. This is a reminder of something that they already knew. And it seems to be, when we read verses 3 through 7, that there's a pretty good chance that the Corinthians knew the gospel in exactly the formula, exactly the words that Paul is giving them now. You notice, of course, in these verses how incredibly succinct and concise Paul is with his language. 
Paul doesn't normally mince words with the gospel. He doesn't add a whole lot of fluff, but this is on a completely different level. He's just throwing out these statements. He's just stacking them up one on top of another. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He appeared to Cephas and the Twelve and all of these others. And there's very little extra comment. It's incredibly concise. And then at the beginning, there are these two words that he uses. I delivered and you received. What I received, I delivered to you, rather. Now, those are technical terms, really. Those are rabbinic catchphrases. Don't forget, for all the time that Paul has spent among the Gentiles, he was trained as a Pharisee. He was trained by rabbis, and when rabbis pass on official teaching, official doctrine that you are supposed to memorize and hide in your heart and keep and hold fast to, they use these words. That they deliver when you receive. This is what happens. We see this same language back in chapter 11. If you flip back just one page. Chapter 11, verse 23, Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper. 11.23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And then he goes on to teach them about the Lord's Supper. You see, in both places, Paul is passing on what seems to be official teaching of the church, and he's calling believers at Corinth to pay attention to every single word that he's giving to them. These two details, this idea that it's incredibly concise and this idea of delivering and receiving give us a pretty good indication that Paul might well be giving them a sort of proto-creed for the church. One of these first statements of faith that all the Christians in the Roman world would have known and professed together. That's the way that creeds work. They're short, clear summaries of doctrine that you can memorize, you can hide away, you can pass on to someone else. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. It doesn't tell us everything we want to know about God the Father. There's a whole lot more we could say. But it gives you the basic doctrine, doesn't it, in a way that's short and memorable and clear and that you can pass on to someone else. There's a good chance that this is what Paul is doing. That he's passing on a creed that was already in place before he ever began his apostolic ministry. Okay. That seems a bit pedantic. What does that mean, and why is that important? Well, here we have Paul saying, reminding them, really, of something they already knew, something that he says was passed to him, and he passed on to them. But we know that Paul is writing to the Corinthians. He tells us in chapter 16, he's in Ephesus. This is sometime during his second missionary journey. So we know that Paul is reminding them of this creed or this statement, perhaps, that they already knew and was passed on to them, and this is happening in the year maybe 54 or 55 A.D., 22 years at most after the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's significant, especially if this is a creed that predates Paul's conversion. That puts it closer to maybe five years after Jesus' resurrection. But you see, one of the supposed critiques of the doctrine of the resurrection is that it is a late addition to Christianity. So the skeptics say that Christianity is like a snowball rolling down a hill, and it starts small, and there's just this little kernel of truth, but as it goes, it picks up all of this other stuff. And the doctrine of the resurrection, you know, that's so implausible, you're not going to get anyone to believe that anywhere within a generation of the time that it actually happened. People raising from the dead, come on. 
You've got to wait for the eyewitnesses to die off. You've got to give time for the stories to become legends and legend to become myth. And then maybe then, maybe a hundred or so years afterwards, you'll get a few people who are gullible enough to believe that maybe someone was actually raised from the dead. And Paul says, 22 years after it happened, I'm telling you the same thing that was told to me. This has always been a doctrine of the church, you see. This is not a late addition. This is the heart of the gospel. Now, we can't prove for certain that this is a creed or not a creed or maybe just a formula that Paul used sometimes. But we do know that Paul is clear on the doctrine of the resurrection. That is where the emphasis falls on this entire summary that we have here. There are four parts, Paul says, to the gospel that he summarizes. There are two acts of theological fulfillment, and there are two acts of historical proof. Theological fulfillment and historical proof. Now, for the fulfillment, Paul says, excuse me, Paul says Christ died for our sins. He was raised on the third day, and both of these happened according to the Scriptures. That means it is not enough to think that Jesus' death was merely the tragic end to a good man. He somehow wound up on the wrong side of the law and the authorities. No, 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 no. His life was not taken from him, but he laid it down of his own accord. His death was the culmination and the climax of all of God's saving intentions for his people. Christ gave himself, sacrificed himself, to take the sins of his people, to bear the burden that we deserve, the burden and the penalty that we have incurred through our sin and our rebellion against the living God. And it happened according to the Scriptures, perhaps according to Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, and it was the will of the Lord to crush him. According to the Scriptures, he says, Christ died for our sins, for our iniquities. But also according to the Scriptures, perhaps according to what David wrote in Psalm 16, it happened to Jesus. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not let your Holy One to see corruption. And so Jesus, who had truly died for our sins, was truly raised on the third day by the power of the Spirit. Christ, who had stooped low to take on mortality, was clothed with incorruptibility, and He swallowed up death in His victory over the grave. And He was raised as the promise of resurrection for all those who are His and who hold fast to this gospel preaching. That's the theological fulfillment. It happened according to the Scriptures, just as it was spoken that the Messiah would die for our sins and be raised again. But then there are also these proofs. Paul says, after Jesus' death, he was buried. After his resurrection, he appeared. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the twelve. The five hundred people at one time. He appeared to James. He appeared to all the apostles. Paul doesn't link all of these events to particular scriptures, and so it's probably best to see these as the signs that that validate Jesus' gospel ministry. Proofs pointing out that what we're saying happened actually happened. 
proof that Jesus was so truly and physically dead that they put him exactly where they put all dead bodies. They put him in a tomb. A tomb that was owned by one of the ruling council of Jerusalem. A tomb that was guarded by Gentiles known to everyone. A tomb that would be very easy to point out within five or ten years of Jesus' death and resurrection if, in fact, he had not actually been raised. And Jesus was so truly and physically resurrected that he appeared in bodily form to dozens of his followers. And you heard what he said to them in Luke chapter 24 today. See my hand. The Spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And they touched him and they handled him and they watched him eat together with them. And Paul says, oh, by the way, if you want to check my sources, I've got the names of about 500 people in my Rolodex that you can check with. Give them a call and see if they were there on that day. So you see, throughout this gospel summary, the stress falls on the reality of the resurrection. He's setting us up for the argument that's going to come later that Christ's people also are physically resurrected. But what we need to get now is that holding fast to the gospel means believing in the real sacrificial death and the real physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians throughout the ages, and probably you as well, might believe all sorts of other doctrines in addition to that, other good things that we need to know about the Lord. But no true Christian in all the history of the church has ever believed less than that. The gospel proclaims a physically risen Savior. And if you do not believe in a physically risen Savior, you do not believe the gospel. And whatever faith you have, is in vain. But for those who hold fast to this promise and this truth that Jesus was raised on the third day, for those who hold fast to this message of the resurrected Savior, you have standing with the Lord. You are being saved by this gospel and in this gospel. That's what this gospel is all about. Now, the last thing Paul wants us to know and get straight is how God transforms those who believe in the gospel. This is something that can sometimes get overlooked when we talk about the resurrection, especially when we come together and we read 1 Corinthians 15 or some other important text around the time of Easter, and we begin to talk about the resurrection, and we all look forward to what it will be like to have new and resurrected bodies, perfected and incorruptible, like Jesus perfected an incorruptible body. And won't it be great to be rid of our aches and our pains and never have to worry about death or dying or sin. And that is true, and that is some of the truth that we are going to unpack in the coming weeks as we look more and more at 1 Corinthians 15, and that is good. But Paul wants us to know right at the beginning that the truth of the resurrection also changes us now. Or rather that God, by His grace, changes those who have received this gospel message. How does He change us? It makes us part of what he's doing in the world. He makes us also witnesses of the hope of the resurrection. He puts us to work. He gives us uh, something to do in the Lord. There is a trajectory, really, that this, uh, this whole passage has. Look at the end of chapter 15. If you don't like spoilers, 
cover your ears for a minute, but this is where Paul is leading. Chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God changes those who believe in the resurrection now. He gives us work to do. He makes us part of what he is doing in the world. And so Paul adds himself to the list of those who saw the risen Lord. Verse 8. Last of all is to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. Paul isn't pointing out his, his personal experience so that we will think that Paul is a wonderful person. In fact, just the opposite. He talks about himself in pretty stark terms here. It's to one untimely born. The Greek is, is a lot more graphic. It means a miscarriage. That tragedy of the baby who never gets to see the world outside the womb. That is how spiritually dead Paul was when Jesus found him and called him on the Damascus road. Completely dead, miscarried, aborted. That's the idea that he uses here. And if it's possible, he was even worse than dead because he was murderous. Breathing out threats and accusations against the church. Not only was he one untimely born, but he was a persecutor. He was the last person on earth that you would think would be wrapped up in excitement about this risen Jesus that everyone else was proclaiming. He says, that's who I was. And by God's grace, the Lord breathed life into Paul's murderous rage, and God transformed him. He made an apostle out of a miscarriage. He turned a persecutor into a preacher and made him the most prolific planter of churches the world has ever seen. He made him someone who was willing to labor for Christ and suffer for Christ and die for Christ. He made him someone who had a hope and a joy in the resurrected Savior that nothing in life or death could extinguish. It was unexpected. It was undeserved. It was grace. That's the way grace always works. Maybe that's the way grace works in your life. And you're the person sitting here that all of your friends in some sort of former life that you had, all the members of your family are flabbergasted because you're the last person on earth that they ever thought would be sitting in church and rejoicing in the message of the risen Savior. And it's unexpected and it is undeserved. It is grace. And the Lord delights to transform his people. Now, I am just barely old enough to remember all of those uh, old commercials for ultra-slim-fast diet shakes. They all followed the same formula. They had their once-rotund spokesperson, and they would show you pictures of their flabby former self. They would hold up these pants that were now laughably large, and they would talk about how excited they were and how wonderful life was now that they're thin. And oh, how easy it was. <laughs> Just two shakes a day, and they would always end with that same tagline. And remember, if I can do it, you can do it. That's not really Paul's point here. He's not saying, oh, it's an easy thing to change your life, to go from one who hates the gospel to one who loves the risen Savior. He's not saying that if you believe this gospel, you will become the world's best disciple of Christ. You will work harder than anyone else by the grace of God. You will do wonderful things, monumental things, great things that people will be in awe of, and 2,000 years later, people will still be talking about your discipleship. He's not saying that. 
But he is saying that if the Lord can do this in his life, imagine what he can do in yours. That's what God delights to do through the power of the gospel. He delights to transform his people through joy in Jesus Christ. And he does it in ways that you might never imagine. He does it by the power of his grace, and he does it as we hold fast to the message of the resurrected Savior. May he do it in you and in me. Let's pray. O gracious Lord, our God, thank you for this gospel which you have given to us. We pray that this would be clear, crystal clear in our minds, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared really and truly. And Because he is our resurrected Savior, we have hope and joy in you. O oh Lord, keep us always holding fast to that gospel. Work in us perseverance and faith and rejoicing in Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.